0: At the end of the day, I think all of these things, data literacy, data quality, it doesn't matter how good your tooling is. You could really have the the world's best analytic self-service tooling, but if you don't have the culture around using it, it isn't going to work. It's actually a challenge in our data culture. We need to fix this problem of incentives. Like We need to build this world where our product teams care about data enough that there's a pull for this stuff rather than a push.
1: Welcome to The Right Track a podcast for people building data cultures. We will hear from leaders in engineering product and data as they share their frustrating and inspiring stories on building the best products for their customers by mastering outcome-driven development, self-serve analytics, and great data cultures. I am Stefania Olafsdottir, CEO and co-founder of AVO, the analytics governance platform. Changing how developers, product managers, and data scientists collaborate to plan, track, and govern their product analytics. Keep the conversation going with us in the Right Track community. Join us on therighttrack.avo.app. The Right the Track is brought to you by Heavybit, an accelerator and venture fund dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit Heavybit.com. In this episode, I spoke with Nick Thrappleton. Nick is a senior product analyst at Cultura. He made the journey from industrial design through marketing into data. We spoke about how sometimes lack of trust in data really means I don't trust myself to pull this data. We also discussed how to empower folks on your team to use and be curious to use data in their daily work. I learned a lot from chatting with Nick and hope you will too. Hi Nick, welcome to The Right Track.
0: Hey Steph, thanks for having me.
1: Super excited to have you. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do and how you got there?
0: Yeah, sure. I'm a senior product analyst at CultureAmp, although sometimes my job title is product manager of analytics. It's a... it's a little bit gray at the moment. <laughs> My background actually initially was in industrial design. So I studied, for those that don't know, it's very much like product design, very much in the world of architecture, because I really just liked solving problems. And then I realized that there's just no industry for it at all in Australia, <laughs> sadly. But I got really interested in UX, and I was you know, doing a bit of UX through like advertising, and advertising agency. And I kind of landed in, in the agency world and ended up doing a lot of digital marketing, because that is... Most of what you do in the <laughs> agency world. And that's where I learned that at the end of the day, digital marketing, a like good digital marketing, is really good analytics. It's one of the most important skills of being a good digital marketer. So there was a problem for me to solve, and I was really interested in solving that. So I really focused on that and built my skills in analytics in that world, um, which I think is a pretty common path for people moving into like a product analytics, digital analytics kind of role. So I was doing that and then I realized I really wanted to work in product. So that's when I made the move to CultRamp, And I've been here for about two and a half years now and have been working my way through more and more around building our data culture and thinking about how we do analytics, not just ourselves, but getting our product managers and our product teams to do analytics themselves to make changes and, and make a better product.
1: I love that story. I actually didn't know that you came from industrial design. You said that, right?
0: Yep, that's right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I was actually close to studying that myself. <laughs> really?
0: I just build furniture now on the side. That's fun. Ah.
1: Wow. That's yeah. amazing. So I mean, okay, side story. I registered almost for this education, but instead I went and traveled in Australia for half a year.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a way better decision. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. For like Melbourne has always been one of my favorite cities. Really? Yeah. Definitely. Uh, but yeah, I think. You've touched on something that's super also interesting just before we dive into all of the data culture stuff, which is the journey from marketing analytics to product analytics and your theory on, okay, that's a common journey. I'd like to touch on that maybe a little bit deeper because I, I think that's right. Do you have like a thought on why that is?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think digital marketing pushes you into kind of the web app space. So. You, Really, to do digital marketing, well, you have to understand at least the basics of tracking. Um, you have to understand how data is collected and how data is processed so that you can use it in the way that you market it to people. Um, you have to think about you know, how segmentation is run or the quality of the data to understand who you're talking to and how you're talking to them. You know, how accurate is that audience that you're going to end up talking to and how accurate is your tracking? So you end up learning, I think, a lot of skills around you know, a bit of front-end, a bit of tracking, and just kind of data literacy skills in general. And I think because that is really the skill set of a product analyst, it is a combination of what are more traditional business analytics skills, like SQL and things like that, and then having that kind of front-end, slightly more technical literacy around the web or, or apps.
1: Yeah, I love that. I'm wondering also whether it is a little bit about like this journey. I mean, it fits a little bit into the a A R R R metric <laughs> world. I would forget how many A's there are and how many <laughs> R's there are. But it's like you're we're talking about the you know the acquisition part and the getting the right people through the door and then getting them into your product. Mm-hmm. And then after that, obviously what you want them to do is be successful. So it seems like a, a natural progression, number one. Yep. And then the other part which is interesting is just like this how the world has shifted in how they think about growth. You know, it used to be about acquisition, but really now it is way more about like, how do you build so good products that have so good value that people want to stay and keep using them for a long time?
0: Yeah, it's maybe not all about retention, but it's uh, largely about retention.
1: Yeah, exactly. I would love to ask you if you can... Tell us an inspiring data story uh, and a
0: frustrating data story. I'm going to start with a frustrating one because I think it's quite serendipitous to uh, this recording. <laughs> <laughs> about a, f- a few minutes before we kicked off this recording, we picked up that one of the most critical events that we track in the app was significantly under-tracked. So we realized actually only about 9% of the events that happened were actually tracked. And it's, it's one of the events that goes towards our, our Norsi metric, which is weekly active managers. That means that our ANORSI metric we've been reporting on for the last year could be 50% of its actual value that it should be reporting on, which is pretty dramatic.
1: What was the discovery? How did you discover it? Maybe you don't know that yet. You just found out. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: No, we actually discovered it because we tried to switch our old active users definition to our new one, which is users amplitude. Mm. And we realized the user count was way, way less. We looked at it and found that the major discrepancy was this one event, which is when someone submits a survey, capturing the server response, which is a very critical thing to a company that does surveys. And we think it's just to do with the way it's implemented. I think it's just it's firing before the redirect, and sometimes the redirect happens before the firing. It's a bit of a race condition problem.
1: Hey, my favorite kind. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the best kind. The best kind. I think it's an interesting problem, though, because it really touches the whole chain of responsibility, right? In, in a decentralized world, you know, we have a whole company relying on a metric that relies on all of our teams to contribute so I think it's gonna raise some interesting questions about how we can maintain data quality and data custodianship so that people understand you know the teams not just how they use it but how the rest of the company will use it as well so I think uh, that's gonna be an interesting uh, day for me
1: <laughs> oh my god yeah I almost want to do like a part two of this uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> do a conversation. Four. how yeah. did it go stay tuned for part 2.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I think you're you're touching on something really exciting there, which is learning the hard way about, you know, how much of an impact you can have.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: on the entire sort of business trajectory and decision making by skipping
0: <laughs> a single Look, it's not ideal, but I, in some ways it is a positive thing. And the reason it's a positive thing is I think you do need to go through these things to see the real impact. Like it's a bit ambiguous. The value of data or the value of getting things right until the impact happens and people realize, oh, like this critical thing we make decisions on across the whole company is now not working because we didn't get this right. Uh, so I think it's a really good way to actually demonstrate the value of doing these things correctly. So I'm not, that's not great. Um, I think there's an upside to it too.
1: Yeah, I just, I, you're right, it's serendipitous. <laughs> I, I have two follow up questions that are, one of them is um, probably a good segue into the rest of the conversation. The other one is sort of more of a comment. I love that you're talking about data custodianship, or how did you frame that?
0: Yeah, data custodianship. Is
1: data custodianship something that you did you make that up?
0: <laughs> no, I stole it from one of our um, backend engineers because it's a it's a problem in backend engineering, uh, and it's a problem in analytics. It's you know the idea of responsibility of data and people understanding where those lines fall, which is really critical, especially in a company that's kind of heavily matrixed or decentralized which I think a lot of product companies are. And the way we look at custodianship is more of an outcome of everything else. That is, like if we get all of our data culture things right, we get people interested in, in using analytics, the data custodianship becomes easier. You know that People understand the responsibility, understand the benefits to owning that data. Um, so it's a hard one to drive on its own, I think. It really is something that you measure, but you try and change through more indirect ways.
1: Mm, yeah, I love, thank you for sharing this. I love this framing because people have been talking about data governance a lot. And I personally (laughs) come from a data background and it was a framing of a part of my job that I just hated. I was like, no, (laughs) number one, I have no interest in governing this. We should all be incentivized for this to work. And number two, I, I was just very allergic to the word. So I think this is a word that I could have always related to. So I really like that. And what you just said, I feel like you're touching on this journey that companies go through which is from the centralized bi team to mm-hmm. the self-serve analytics culture to realizing that self-serve analytics culture doesn't work if you don't have quality data and then you get to this like centralized governance and then the ultimate mission will be like decentralized data custodianship type of thing maybe it's like a beautiful utopian world <laughs> that you can build towards that
0: is the utopia and it's a very hard place to get to i think but worth yeah,
1: it. yeah, and this conversation today will be about, I guess, your journey to get there, though, um, and the learnings along the way, which I'm excited to cover. Which brings me to my other question, which I think it'll, will be a good segue into like the cultural aspect of the company who will care about this thing today? Like, who will be a person that will be bummed out that this happened?
0: Uh, talking about the problem with the North Star, that's right, yep, look. Our board, who we report to, our um, you know exec, and all the people in product to make decisions about it. We just for has finished a big analysis on decomposing that WAM into some input metrics and understanding you know where the drop off is and driving that North Star and some of the opportunities to fix it. We're going to have to look back. That I mean that, that all that work as well might be wrong. Mm-hmm. So that also means us we care about that because it really does affect the insights and the the actions we've decided on based on the you know. The problem with that data. It really does go across pretty much the whole business.
1: Yeah, we'll probably touch on this later, but I feel like there's a maturity stage in the company lifecycle where front-end developers even that historically have seen analytics as tasks, they start caring about this also. Yep. That's a maturity stage in my opinion.
0: I totally agree. And I think that's a big part of data custodianship is that moving that from that understanding of like uh, analytics is something that I add when I have time as a nice bonus to help out, to being like, no know analytics is, is really important to me and the company, and it, there's a benefit to me doing it, and people want to do it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's a hard place to get to, but I think it's, it's a good goal.
1: Awesome. Thank you for sharing that frustrating and timely story. Uh, <laughs> did you have an inspiring one as <laughs> an opposite?
0: Yeah, I, I do, actually. So this is a little bit longer ago, maybe maybe a year ago. But I think it's one of my favorite examples of using product insights, and pretty simple ones, honestly, to make an impact. So we'd been struggling for quite a while as a product analytics team in terms of just questioning, like, are we really making an impact? Like, yeah, we're answering these questions. People want to know how many people use my thing, and we're, we're centralized, so we're just answering it for them. And, you know, it was very hard to get a sense of, like, is this important or worthwhile? Like, what's the point of our jobs? And then this question came through. I think to explain this question, I'll just give a little bit of background on culture and for people that, that don't know. One of, one of the major parts of our product is engagement, so we help companies survey their employees to understand how engaged they are. And then the, the really the big value moment for most companies is getting the report back, because that report gives you a lot of information about you know, the driver's and engagement and compares it to other similar companies and things like that. So that's a really critical point. Some companies choose to follow, we have a thing called an action framework, where people can you know, choose to take actions based on those focus areas. And then the last thing they can do is ask their employees how they went taking that action. So it's like an action feedback survey kind of thing. And one of the product managers of, of that area was like, oh, no one is using this thing. Like, why is the usage so little? Like, We need some insights on you know, how we can improve the usage of this thing. So we started looking at it and we're like, yeah, you are right. There's, you know, It's it's not significant, the usage. And they're like, yeah, well, can, can we dig into it? Like, What kind of customers are using it? Can we like find more of those people? Can we, we expand that way? And we started looking at it and we're like, hang on, is this really the right area to be focusing on? So what we did is we just built a really simple funnel, which we looked at from the very start of launching a survey through to reporting, sharing the report, coming to action, and then doing the, the follow-up survey, you know, we realized really clearly that the problem is not at the bottom of the funnel. The problem is way further up, and there's a way bigger opportunity to affect way more customers and provide way more impact, as well as improve this thing, and that was to get people to share reports. So we realized that most companies weren't sharing reports with most people. So a majority of our companies were just sharing reports with HR and maybe exec. And they weren't sharing it out to like, your managers. And ideally, we try and encourage companies to share it to everyone, you know, filter down to the relevant teams and things like that. So we've had this huge, huge drop-off in the funnel from you know, launching a survey to sharing a report. So you know, the chance that someone's going to make it through to then you know, four steps down this funnel is, is very unlikely. Uh, and when we realized that, that actually sparked a big change in the whole entire group that deals with engagement. And actually shifted their goals entirely over the next year nearly, to focus on you know, the quality report, sharing the accessibility reports, and all that kind of work. And that's actually made a big impact.
1: Oh, I love that.
0: pretty incredible. Yeah. And uh, it was such a simple piece of analytics. It's literally a <laughs> user journey funnel.
1: I agree that this is a really inspiring story. And this is like a story where... It's wonderful that the data was in place or that you could implement it fairly quickly to set up like this analysis. But stories like these, they are the stories that trigger people to want more. They are the internal marketing of the value of data and analytics that sort of Mm -hmm. spark us to like, ah, okay, I might want to do more of this. Um, So I think these are like doing huge promotional internal events for learnings like this can be Super valuable for building good data cultures, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Congrats on this!
0: <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, it felt good.
1: I think this might be a good segue into like. Um, I don't trust this data. Mm-hmm. Is a very common statement. We've talked about that before, you and I, and yep. I know you have some hot takes under that conversation uh, <laughs> that I think will be fun to share and. Inspiring stories like these, they are trigger for people wanting more about data. And so this statement, I don't trust this data, it's super common. Why is it? And how can you solve it?
0: It's a really good point. That is a challenge that I think everyone that has a self-service culture has dealt with before and probably deals with really often. And it's a problem that we've in the past addressed as a technical problem, which is not necessarily wrong, you know, we look at, you know, making sure that there's good QA and and things like that. But I think it misses a larger part of the problem. And that is a larger data culture problem, which is that to get data quality, you need people doing analytics, because if they're doing analytics, then they care about tracking good quality data. But to get people doing analytics, you need good data quality. So it's this kind of, it's similar to like the marketplace problem, where you're trying to get both at the same time. And it's a really, really hard one to solve. Like, how do you build this like cycle where you get data quality and analytics, and one doesn't break the other. You, know, you might get people start using it, but then the data quality is really poor, and then all of a sudden people stop using it because they don't trust that data. That is a hard problem to solve. It's not one that you, I think you can solve right away, and I think it's something you do need to solve iteratively. The one thing I think that we did get right and that we're still focusing on is building this like minimum level of quality. So you make it as easy, as accessible as possible for people to get data right it does require a bit of work and a bit of hand-holding. And it's about like having the right tooling, making it really easy to see what events are coming through, and making people really see literally how the data comes through as well. So not making it too abstract. I found it like, really helpful if people can just see the events as they come up when they go through the user journey. It makes a lot of sense for them. They can go into you know, Amplitude or wherever they're doing their analysis and then understand that, oh, okay, like. I'm doing these things, that's the journey, that's how the data comes up, and so I analyze it, and that's what I'm going to get for everyone else. So I think that's where you start to get a bit more trust in the data is gain that, that minimum level of quality, but you need to also consider that problem as well, that problem of people actually using analytics to get data quality in the first place.
1: Yeah, I just love this comparison to the marketplace and finding a product market fit with a product analytics with in the company. I think you've really hit the nail on the head there. <laughs> um, and I think what you're highlighting is like, well, data trust issues. <laughs> they are not only technical issues, they are very much around. Data literacy, which is one of the things that you touched on, like yep. for me to actually understand what is the thing that I'm looking at. And it sounds like exactly like what does an event even mean when I press a button and then it counts stuff? Um, having that transparent mm-hmm. is one of those things. I relate to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's data literacy. There is data inspiration. <laughs> and then there's the data quality as well piece. So, yeah, I think that's that's a really yeah, I love this. I love this analogy.
0: The more I do this, the more I realize when you're trying to do self-service, it has a lot of parallels to just regular startup problems. And you mentioned product market fit. And I, I really do think a data culture is having a really good product market fit. And when I say market, I mean your internal stakeholders between the self-service tool and the way that you sell it and, and build it and the culture. At the end of the day, I think all of these things, data literacy, data quality, it doesn't matter how good your tooling is. You could really have the the world's best analytic self-service tooling. But if you haven't sold it in the right way and you don't have the culture around using it, it's just, it isn't going to work. People aren't going to care about it and they're not going to understand the value. So they're not going to use it. And if they don't use it, you're not going to track the data and get the data quality that you wanted in the first place, which is, it is frustrating, but it's also kind of inspiring. Like it, It's an interesting and fun challenge. Mm
1: -hmm. You've touched on this thing, which is an obsession of mine, personal obsession of mine, which is bringing data consumers and data producers closer together. And by data consumers, I mean people like product analysts, product managers, data scientists, whoever is playing around with the data, eventually, Mm -hmm. and then the developers that actually write the code that get the data points to whatever you <laughs> need to use the data in, but also the data designers. And so having those people and group communicate really well together, I relate to that. And particularly when the data producers become the data pr- consumers, that when developers actually care about analytics and point and flick, uh and charts and amplitude or whatever, um, or mix panel or or looker or wherever they're looking at their data. I think that does a lot. Mm-hmm. I agree. You did mention also, I guess it's another way of framing this, but I love that you mentioned it. It's You once told me that you have commonly heard verbatim, I don't trust this data, but you've also heard sort of, I don't trust myself to pull this data, which I guess is a, around this data literacy thing. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about what you're doing to fix this, because I know it's been uh, an adventurous and inspiring and sort of rapidly changing culture. culture. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, culture change at a culture company is interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so can you tell us a little bit about this journey? Like what needs to happen to to find that product market fit? What has already happened and what are you doing more mm-hmm. around that?
0: So I think there's some tactical things that we're doing And then there's some motivational things that we're doing as well. So I'll talk to the tactical first. And those are a bit more obvious and literal. So that's focusing on things like data literacy. And so we're looking at, you know, do we buy in or do we, you know, write some kind of course to just skill up all our data consumers and ideally data producers on data literacy. So they have that confidence in themselves to know that when they're pulling data, you know, they understand correlation and causation. They understand some of the common pitfalls outliers in data that are pretty easy to fall into, and they have that confidence that when they're pulling it, you know, they're they're probably pretty accurate. They're getting pretty confident with things. But like I came back to before, we could offer these courses, and I think if we put it out today, we could buy the best course from the best university in the world and make it super interesting and really fun, and our PMs will do it, and and they'll really like it. But I don't think that they'll apply it right away, and that's not a fault of their own or, or anything. It's actually a challenge in our data culture. It's like, we need to fix this problem of incentives. Like, we need to build this world where our product teams care about data enough that there's a pull for this stuff rather than a push. There's always going to be a little bit of a push. You're always going to push some things out, you know, enforce some things. But I think if you go too far in the push end, it's like where you go to exec and you enforce things and you say, everything has to be done this way. And I think, like, to borrow a term from economics, it's basically rent-seeking behavior. Like, you just, no one likes to be forced to do something. And... I think that's why it's really critical to build a a culture where people have the incentives and the interest in pulling data in the first place. And then the things like, you know, focus on data literacy, focus on data quality become more important.
1: Yeah, it's like this, it's the top-down sales versus bottom-up. It's just easier to sell stuff when there's already buy-in and interest in sort of the smaller stuff and you've seen adoption. I remember you also mentioned, or I guess like maybe a follow-up question of this. What does that look like then in practice? What are... Mm-hmm. How do you create that incentive? How have you been doing it so far, and what's what's coming up?
0: Yeah, that's honestly the biggest question we have right now that we're we're trying to work through as a team. and that's our focus for this year is how do we how do we really embed the incentives and the data culture into the company? And there's a few things that are happening. I don't have too much to report on on their success so far, but I can talk about you know how we're doing those things. And the first one is we are starting a little bit at the top, and by that I mean. We have a North Star metric, but most teams have no idea how they can contribute to that because it's so disconnected from what you do day to day. Right. So we've done some work to decompose that North Star into a funnel and then a series of metrics to drive that funnel. To give a practical example of that it's weak active managers, well, the first step is you need to you start with contracted users. You need to identify if they're a manager, or not like, the first step. And then once you know they're a manager, you need to get them into the platform for the first time. Then you need to get them back in some more regular periods and then you need to retain them. So, all right, there's some steps that we can focus on, and, and the drop of each of those steps make a bit more sense. So, you know, some of them are, are sales and customer success at the top, and some of them are you know product and product quality down the bottom. And then each of those metrics can be broken down further as well. And I think as we do that, we're going to build metrics that are both very relevant to the company strategy and actionable at different levels. So some are good for you know kind of department or what we call camp levels, more like product group levels, and some are you know as we get further down more appropriate for teams but that's still a lot of metrics like that is a lot of things for a lot of people to keep track of and one thing i'm really fond of that our product execution group is doing is this idea of themes so as a way to simplify thinking about this is like grouping everything into four themes and an example of a theme is you know bringing management in the platform so a theme has a set of objectives and people attach their kind of okrs to those themes so we can track this theme with a key metric like in the platform and measure retention, and then teams can work out how they contribute to that thing. So they can pick a metric that links to it, or if they have a hypothesis that they want to test, they can also do that and see if it impacts that outcome measure. So I think the benefit of, all of doing all this work and thinking about these things is that teams have a goal that can be measured that they care about. Because right now, if the person above a team doesn't care about the measure that they're working on, then they're not going to care about it. The incentive isn't there. And so analytics becomes a nice-to-have because you're doing it, but you're not measured on the outcome. And I'm not advocating for this like extreme world of uh, you know, everything has to be delivered on a specific measurable outcome. But I think a step towards that direction, having outcomes that indicate success, is really, really handy for teams. And it's really important for building a data culture because everyone cares about the metric. Then if you care about the metric, well, the data has to be tracked really well. And you have to make sure that the, the quality is there. And you have to make sure that you understand the data well enough to Report on it. So I think that that's probably the key way we're going to work on building that pool is actually through this these themes and, and these metrics.
1: I'm so excited on your behalf
0: about this.
1: <laughs> this is going to be so fun. Yeah. And just kudos on a really exciting execution on this strategy of, to the product execution team, it sounds like. Um, yep. And I agree with you. This is the step towards like. You framed it just so beautifully. When teams have goals they actually care about, analytics becomes something they care about and doesn't stay as one of the tasks they have to complete, (laughs) which is unfortunately a mindset that is still there in some cases and makes sense as a mindset if analytics and the value of the data that you're getting from it is so far removed from you.
0: Yeah, it's really it does come down to organizational structure and incentives. Actually, you know, even if the individual is really motivated, which we have some PMs that love analytics and do an incredible job of pulling their own data, it's extra work. You know, it's not a part of their the day to day, and we want to make sure that it's a part of the skill set and the things that they do because it is important for building a better product in the end of the day.
1: Exactly. So I want to maybe segue this a little bit into sort of a. Your org structure, I know that you are personally sort of running some initiatives in, you know, adding to the team and putting more focus on analytics and product analytics and things like that. Yep. This is something that I think I, I get this question a lot when people reach out for advice on who should they hire and who should that person report to and should the analytics data specialists or data scientists or data professionals or what we want to call them? Should they be in their own team or integrated into the other teams? Um, How does data work with product and engineering? Mm -hmm. I'm dumping a bunch of questions in one um, as sort of like, can you talk a little bit about your org structure and how that has evolved, what you've learned along that route and, and what you aspire to there?
0: Yeah. Uh, I'll start with our structure when I started about two and a half years ago. And that was a really traditionally centralized analytics team. So the team was centralized. There was three of us. One person that you'd probably call an analytics engineer today, but was called a product analyst back then, You know, team lead, and myself, product analyst. And our infrastructure was centralized too. So we'd pull the data in. We were the gatekeepers of the data. Someone asks a question, we choose to answer it or not, and we give them an answer. And some people like that because it's, like, it's easy. You can, like, send a thing off and you get something back sometimes. It's, like,
1: hopefully. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, hopefully. And, you know, there's a bunch of back and forth, and it might take two weeks before you get an answer to your question. <laughs> yes.
1: uh,
0: and you probably already shipped the thing anyway because time doesn't stop for analytics. So, you know, that was, like, that was going okay until <laughs> when we really noticed this was a problem was we, we ran a test with one of the point managers, um, they added a new little banner to one of our main kind of top-level pages. And it was basically a call-to-action banner to use a new feature. And what we did is we said, there's about 35 people, I think, in kind of the, the larger product group that looked up the product. We, we sent a survey out to all of them, like, what percent of people over the next month that go into the platform will click this thing at least once? So, you know, that went, went everyone from like engineers, data scientists, product managers, QA engineers, everyone in the camp. And the average guess, like the average like middle guess was about, I think it was 48%. So on average, people guessed that 48% of people would click this banner. And like to anyone that probably listened to this podcast, worked in analytics, or ever looked at you know kind of web analytics, you know that that is extremely optimistic. <laughs> uh, and the actual result was 8%, which, I mean, that wasn't too bad. <laughs> it was higher than I was expecting. And the, the only person that did get that right, who said 9%, was a data scientist who had worked in that area before. So... We realized that there's this gap between what people's intuition around product usage was and what it actually is. The reason that we think that that was happening is because people are only answering little dots at a time with their questions. Like, you're getting illuminated about this little area and illuminated about this little area, so you had some kind of calibration idea of usage in this spot and this spot, but they didn't, you don't have this good kind of base-level knowledge of, like, you know, what's, what's the kind of average click-through rate or, like, how likely people generally to do something within some boundary? for just fueling relatively, you know, educated estimates. And that's because people just couldn't answer simple questions for themselves. You, at the time, you can't just go in and go, oh, hey, how many people have done this thing? Or what's the drop-off from this step to this step? And it's too much effort to ask an analytics team to answer that. It's like pretty low value. You can't explain why it's valuable to you. It's just interesting. But together, all these questions over time do become really valuable because they shape this intuition. So we realized like, okay, we need to change our approach. Like, This is not giving people the information they need to develop this intuition. And so what we did is we kind of blew the team up. <laughs> we, went, we went very drastic actually. And um, we essentially said, well, um, we need to focus on self-service. We need to allow people to answer these questions themselves, these are kind of common and easy, relatively easy questions in an easy way. Like if it's an easy question, it should be easy to answer and everyone should be able to do it. So that's you know when we started to focus on, you know, procuring it to like amplitude. And the other thing we did is we thought, well, you know, the, the company is growing, it's getting more complex. And there's these really big kind of molehills of domain knowledge between each spot. And so, you know, that's a really good argument for decentralizing the team, right? Like you should put people in, into each of these areas and they can kind of become experts in this domain. And that really helps as an analyst, you know, having that expertise in the product. You really provide much better insights if you can understand that thing particularly well. So that's basically what we did. We blew the team up, our team ended up very decentralized, and we just went from one extreme to the other. And then sometime through last year, we're kind of speaking, and we're like, "This is a nightmare." <laughs> we we'd managed to build and roll out Amplitude and implement it, and had a heap of success in that. We've got basically everyone in the product group that should be using Amplitude, at least using it. Maybe not to the depth we'd like yet, but you know, they're, they're logging in and they're, they're checking some metrics and things, which is a great step in the right direction. But we have all these like centralized type things, like we we managed to. To use your favorite term, data governance, which is relatively centralized. You have a taxonomy you need to manage that centralized. You know you have amplitude and some you know we have bond modeling and things like that that are centralized. So we have these analysts that are like really decentralized, and we're optimized for kind of domain knowledge. But what ended up happening is we're spending most of our time doing the centralized stuff because it was taking much longer to do. So we kind of realized there's an argument for both cases. Like there's benefits to having someone embedded and, and decentralized into teams, and there's benefits to having people centralized as well. And what we kind of came up with this idea, we call it a hub and spoke model. I'm sure there's a better name for it. I'm sure someone's called it. There's been an official name for it. But the idea is we're going to keep the infrastructure decentralized. And what we've done is we've initially centralized the team. So now we have a, a team that looks after product analytics and analytics engineering combined at the moment. And what that does is it means that we can develop a roadmap, a product strategy for analytics. We can focus on these data culture problems and it, building the foundation of analytics. And what that also means is as we grow the team, so we're hiring some more product analysts over the year to, to do this, is we can start scaling up and deploy those product analysts to actually do product analytics and not do all this other stuff. So you know, they get the benefits of being in that domain area, but they also have the benefit of not having to do all this like, distracting, centralized type work. So they can actually focus on the big and meat problems of analytics. The centralized team can focus in on the foundation and like, the self-service culture of, of analytics. So, I mean, check back with me in a year and I'll let you know how it's gone. But I'm pretty hopeful about it. it so far, it seems to be working well for us.
1: Amazing. Yeah, I totally agree <laughs> with this, with the hub and spoke model. Yeah. Um, I went through a similar journey myself, um, scaling the team at QuizUp back on a, back a date. Um, <laughs> and I so much agree with you on this. And I, there are benefits of having the centralization normalizing the way the company do things and just a group of people supporting each other in building the good, high-impact things that do good for the data culture of the company. Mm-hmm. And then there are benefits of the integrated analysis, <laughs> which is, yep. or the integrated analyst, I guess, which is, <laughs> yep. for example, accidental sort of knowledge sharings is one of the things. Yep. And you also get these, like the data scientists who guessed the 9%. Like if you have no one who is a data expert and also knows the product really well. You might not get that kind of expertise and that insight about your product. I totally agree with your approach on like trying to get the best of those worlds.
0: Yeah, I hope it works. It's exciting. I
1: love calling it the hope and spoke model. <laughs> Trademark.
0: <laughs> yeah, or hope and spoke model.
1: Hope and spoke.
0: Model.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, thank you for sharing that. And this was actually a really good, <laughs> I, I mean, uh, the journey from the centralized team and how extremely painfully you highlighted the bottleneck experience. Mm. I think that's going to speak to a lot of people. Yep. <laughs> I hope so. It speaks to me, it brings back um, dark memories.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. Yeah.
1: And so as this whole thing has been evolving you have been changing. I mean, your role has already changed in the last two years. Um, this mm-hmm. industry is just evolving so fast. And um, when I started doing product analytics, the term wasn't really even coined.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And analytics engineer is a role that I just learned, you know, this year or something. It's really same, new. Same. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so how are you recruiting for these roles?
0: That's a a great question. Yeah, I'll talk to them separately. So we realized to our product analysts, if you look at there's a... DBT have a really good idea of the spectrum of skills, and it goes from data engineering, kind of data science. I'm, I'm not convinced data science belongs to the spectrum, but anyway, data engineering analytics engineering, product analytics, kind of through to BI. So that's kind of the, the spectrum of skills. And, and right now, our product analysts have this really wide skill set. So they kind of go from BI all the way through to analytics engineering. You know, They do modeling, they do data pool, they send data to systems and things like that. And what we're really keen to do is focus those a little bit more. So the product analysts do focus on the product analytics and the analytics engineering focuses on the analytics engineering side of things. So for the product analysts, that actually means we can focus in on a a narrower set of skills. And those skills that we're focused on now, yes, we care about these technical skills, but actually not as much as we used to. Like, yes, we expect people to know SQL, and they still need to understand data modeling and and potentially do some. But what we're really concerned about and we can focus in on is just purely their analytic skills. You know, your data literacy, your, your ability to communicate data, those kind of things. So I think a lot of the background's Especially in Australia, there's not a lot of people with a job title of product analyst, <laughs> so we'll probably get we'll probably get quite a lot of people from you know either someone to myself from like kind of digital agency or digital the digital world or maybe um, some consulting as well. I think that's largely where those people come from, and there might be some skilling, but that's fine. It's a it's a weirder niche area, so <laughs> we expect that. Yeah. The analytics engineer is the interesting one, and we've been going back and forth on this a little bit because actually we think there's actually two distinct types of analytics engineers that we need. And one is maybe what most people think of Annex engineer as, which is, you know, you're using things like dbt, you're, you're doing a lot of SQL, you're building data models, you're like helping get a data from systems to systems. It's not quite like data engineering with, it's not as heavy with infrastructure and things like that, but it's using tools to move data around and things like that, and, and model and make it useful for the business. But there's also a really important front-end skill set that we need. And like our, our unicorn is someone that has like a full, full stack experience because they can do, do everything, but that is truly a unicorn. But yeah, there's this whole other front end, like analytics engineering skill set that we need, which is, you know, people that can help build the systems and processes of tracking data and getting it in in the first place. So that's not doing the instrumentation, but being the point expert for teams who are trying to do it. You know, not necessarily owning what the events that are tracked, but owning the framework and systems for getting it tracked. So if we need, you know, QA and things like that, like making sure that that exists, probably managing the taxonomy or helping manage taxonomy and just... Ensuring data quality throughout the whole process and helping us get people to trust that data to call back to earlier. Yeah. So we're we're just working through that. We're basically hiring opportunistically. So I think we, we've put a relatively broad um, job description out for analytics engineer and said, you know, we don't expect people to meet all these requirements. We'll essentially take someone that's good at One of those things.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, And hopefully two people eventually.
1: And for anyone who is listening and looking, I've had the opportunity to interact with Nick a bunch in the last few months. It's been very fun and also the development team. I'm going to say plus one on joining CultRamp. Thank you. (laughs) Where can they apply?
0: Oh, just through our careers page on Cultram. You'll find it at the bottom of the site.
1: Nice. Good little placement there. I like it. Um, so it sounds like you're looking to optimize those, like the full stack experience of the process as well. And I think that's a really actually interesting question about this, getting producers, data producers, data consumers closer together. Um, and you mentioned like the QA part and the setting up the taxonomy and all that stuff. Um, where would you say that process is today? And who cares about it at the organization? Like, what is the who has a passion for that today? Where does the developer standpoint stand? Uh, where does the PM standpoint stand today? And what is the ideal situation in that?
0: You know, that's a really hard question to answer, and the reason for that is is that it's not consistent. So we have two main products: of culture, engagement, and performance, and the company the product teams are largely split that way. We also have a platform camp, which focuses on the kind of unified experience. And each have a slightly different culture around it, and we have to actually approach each a bit differently. So I've been deployed into the performance part for a while, and you know we've been working largely with them. And you know one of their um, the kind of senior PM in performance camp is an ex analyst from AWS. So we have a really good partner stakeholder in a senior position in performance camp to kind of build these things. She, she understands all the benefits. She's has the data literacy. She's able to help us make this impact. In the other camps, we, we have people with skills just as great and just as strong, but I think the approach is different because they have different histories. The hardest thing I think we struggle with, and I think most teams are probably at this point still, is that data and analytics is treated as a, most people call it logging for one, and two, it's kind of treated as a nice to have. Like It's thought about just before they ship something. If there's time to add it, or often after it's been shipped, and so we'll get partial data on a new feature release or something like that, and that's probably the number one problem I want to tackle is we want to bring analytics in. You want to kind of start having purpose meetings, which I got that from you, Steph. Thank you. That was um, (laughs) yeah. I think that's a really good idea, much earlier on in the product journey and I think one way we can do that is actually partner with our UX designers because the time that they're starting to hand things over and and settle on a problem is a really good time to start thinking about measuring it you know they define the user journey also the UX designers are super interested in this stuff as well so I think we have a good ally there in kind of building this
1: Awesome. Yeah, it sounds like you're on a journey with the themes and with um, some of the sort of initiatives and like how you're going to support those product teams in being data driven through the teams. There's an exciting thing happening. And actually, I think it's not a given that designers are... Passionate about this. I mean, they definitely care about UX, uh, but there is a set of uh, designers. I'm sorry, designers, if you (laughs) take offense to this, I don't mean offense, uh, but I feel like there is a set of designers also out there that sort of is like, you can't force creation (laughs) or or something like that. And one of my favorite sort of designers that's super data driven also is uh, Lex Roman, Mm. um, Mm. who has been sort of a spokesperson for a lot of. For our analytics um, stuff, she coined, or at least was early in coining the term growth designer,
0: mm-hmm. um, which
1: is this way of viewing design from this perspective of like, you know, optimizing the user journey a little bit. And I think she built a community around that as well. And she has a lot of material on sort of training people and doing that. So
0: ah, it's really interesting. A little
1: placement, another placement. <laughs> yeah, she's
0: great. I've heard of her, but I'll have to look into her. That sounds really interesting.
1: Absolutely. Oh, you should. We should set up a panel soon. Talk. Have beer. Yes. Um, so, but sort of maybe to start wrapping up, I'd love to maybe hear you talk a little bit about sort of industry changes. Um, mm. You've been mentioning your own both personal journeys um, or professional individual professional journey. Um, and the company journey, um, you know, a lot of tool changes, a lot of process changes, a lot of mindset shifts. Uh, like I was talking about earlier, product analytics <laughs> or, you know, just digital product development. Is a fresh angle. Product analytics is a fresh angle within that, and digital product is even you know already a fresh angle within like software development. It's just all so new, yeah. and it's changing so rapidly. Um, so even if we look at just the past two years, <laughs> um, and then you know we could look at five years as well. But w- what is changing? What is the trend?
0: I think the, the nicest thing about this trend I've noticed is that it's become less of a cowboy field, and things are coalescing around kind of accepted patterns. So maybe even a year ago, it was like for any given problem, there was probably three to five leading tools and then probably 100 others you could probably use that might do some of what you need. And I think everyone had some different combination of some of those tools, and it meant that nothing worked very well with anything. Wow. Like it was pretty frustrating. You know, you are trying to build a data stack that worked together, and you might use, for example, DBT, but then oh, using Presto, and oh, it doesn't work Presto. That's like really frustrating. I, I think they're working on that. I think as these things coalesce and um, become more standardized, and and there's you know a kind of more accepted patterns, I think things will get stronger and easier to work with across the board. And I think all those these decisions around, you know, what tool do we use become easier and easier because you can just lean on someone else's learnings um, and lean on someone else's time spent <laughs> solving problems, which I think is really good. And uh, um, I think that is actually making things a little bit easier in that front. I think the biggest trend I've seen, though, is actually... It's two steps. It's one, a movement kind of, I guess, back towards front-end tracking, and not necessarily front-end, but generally front-end tracking, and at least event-based tracking. You know, the front-end tracking has its drawbacks. It's not as reliable as using data from a back-end, you know, again, problems with JavaScript and, um, and browsers, et cetera. But there's something beautiful in its simplicity. You can do a thing, and you can see an event fire off. It's very, very literal, and that really helps with data consumption. It really helps with data tracking. And when you've got a co- all these other complex things, it really helps to have just a simple, consistent model. But the next step to that is gain the data quality your front-end events. Um, we've picked this up as well, and I'm sure a lot of companies, we didn't enforce a taxonomy for quite a while. And we ended up at this point where we had like I think over 900 unique events. And we'd have you know survey launched, launch survey, surveys launched. We'd have like all these different versions of the same event type. And then we started getting, because we, you know, we were focusing on localization, then we started getting events in different languages that you know it's not particularly easy to detect language and translate it. So we basically ended up just turning them all into untranslated object event. <laughs> it became practically unusable. No one knew what any event meant. I didn't know what any event meant. So someone asked me to pull some data from it. I would the only way I could do it was actually just reverse engineer it and like go and do the thing, see what events came through. and <laughs> And work with us. There's no documentation, no ownership. It was like really, really hard to work with. And I think one of the best things we did, which we were really resistant, like hesitant to do, because it's not nice, but we started to enforce a taxonomy. And what that meant is we've tried to do it as light as possible and we try to do it as collaboratively as possible. But thinking about the whole taxonomy of our product and making sure that people are using the same consistent type of event for the same thing. The example I always give is like Spotify to our PMs. It's like if you play a song from a playlist or you play a song from a, a daily mix, you just want to know that someone played a song. And then you, you might want to know about where they played it from, but really you just want to know they played a song in the first place. And traditionally people would probably track like played playlist or played daily mix and you would end up with all the possible ways you could possibly play a song and then you'd have to try and turn them into, a, into one event. And it's just no one's going to do it. It's not sustainable. So having that taxonomy and getting that right from the get-go is worth the investment, is worth the time. I think taxonomy management tools like Ineptitude are pretty young at the moment, like they're pretty hard to work with. And we're looking at ways to to improve that, you know, we're worried about taxonomy, how we manage it and things like that. It's pretty difficult at the moment, but it's still worth the effort.
1: Amazing. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) you know, you know, I feel strongly about this as well. This is, uh, (laughs) it's one of those things maybe that, I mean, you can give those advice, but when Yeah. When you have to make the decision to go from implicit to explicit tracking, for example, or uh, free for all to a Mm -hmm. fairly standardized taxonomy, um, it's good to have a really clear reason behind why you're doing it. And I think the experience that you're running with is, is a good one, I guess. Yeah. It's a good argument that you can make (laughs) Mm -hmm. for getting people on your side on this decision.
0: Yeah. And I'd also say that, yeah, the movement from track everything to track just what we need has been really helpful. Yes. It sounds counterintuitive, like you kind of or assume you want all the data all the time, but you really don't. When you want to analyze something and all the data is there, you, you don't want it. <laughs> you really just want the things that have a strong signal. Exactly. I know um, Ray and Atlassian talks about this. It's like a minimum viable user journey. It's like, let's not track everything everyone can do. Let's look at what are the key things that matter, that we're actually going to care about, that means someone's getting value. We talk about them as like a business event. It's like, it affects the business that someone does this thing. And let's not track any more than that. Mm -hmm. It's like a good balance between coverage, but simplicity of analysis and and understanding.
1: I love that. That is a really good, I think take-home message also. I'm about to ask you about some take-home messages. Maybe this will be one of them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What is the first thing that teams should do to get on the right track to start getting their analytics <laughs> right?
0: Hey, hey. Uh, it depends on where you're at right now. I think and your maturity and the size of your business. If you're a new company and you're like a fresh startup, I would say get your front-end events tracked. Like, just don't worry too much about you know the tool or like make sure they're tracked there's a consistent taxonomy and you can get them into a database or something like you you own them, you can work out, you can decide if you want mixed panel amplitude or Looker or some custom like whatever, down the track. But having that data from the get-go is so, so valuable. There's so much you can do with that. We've lost a bit of a history of our front-end events um, because the quality of the data is is quite poor and it's only really in the last year that that quality has improved. So it's really hard, for example, we really hard to compare year-on-year until we have two years of data now. So getting that right is really, really worthwhile. Um, and Actually, you know, I think at any size, and any stage, that's worth doing. Even if you're you know, a huge bank and you're, you've got an app and things aren't great right now, it is worth the investment of getting that, that up. That's probably the, the number one thing you can do to improve your data quality and accessibility of analytics to whoever your stakeholders are. And yeah, I spoke about taxonomy. It is a bit of extra work, but it is worth the work. If you can figure out a way to get your um, stakeholders to help you contribute to that in a reliable way, that's great. But if you have to have a centralized person that's doing it for now, that's also fine. That's where we're at. That's what we're trying to we're trying to get to that earlier bit, but it's hard.
1: Yeah, I love that. I think yeah, that's a good take home message. Starting small, basically, is what you're saying. Like yeah. there is a set of events that um, just start start somewhere.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, and the other thing I would call out is that regardless of what you're trying to do in analytics, it is truly a, like an exercise of patience and iterative learning. You're always dealing with org change. You're dealing with lots of stakeholders all the time. You've got data complexity. You've got lots of things that make it kind of hard. You might have an idea of like this beautiful end state, and it's often not a technical challenge. Nearly never is a technical challenge. Most of the challenges are you know, working with your org, working with the teams and your stakeholders to get there. And so you always recommend have a goal, but break it down into small bits and focus on what you can just get done right now. Because firstly, things are changing. You never know what <laughs> the end goal might be and things will take longer than you expect.
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> it is work, but it is work that pays off on the end. And it's yeah. it, we're going through a cusp, like there is a cusp in sort of, there's a shift happening in the world and people are realizing this. Um, if you are the first person in your company to realize this, mm-hmm. um, then you go... You go, girl, we got you back.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're in the prime position for when it does take off.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, who should they call? Where do they want to learn more stuff? What can you share with a person, mm-hmm. a single person who's trying to become a champion for this right now?
0: I think the best community I've found for product analytics in the world is probably locally optimistic. So you can just Google that, I think, and they have a Slack group. And you know, as far as I can tell, that's it's a really, really good group of like people from Pretty much every company I've seen doing data analytics from you know, Google and Twitter through to like lots of smaller and medium-sized startups. Uh, if you want to learn about this world, I, f- I feel like that's probably one of the best groups out there. That's probably where I'd start and probably where I'd spend most of my time. The DBT community is also really good, a bit more focused on data modeling and sometimes analytics engineering, but worth knowing about as well.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your words of wisdom with everyone in the world who hopefully is listening. Nick, it was great to have you on the show. I hope we'll get part two soon where we'll resolve the emergency (laughs) call this morning. (laughs) Thank you so much, Nick, for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Steph.
1: Thanks for listening to The Right Track. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Keep the conversation going with us in the Right Track community. Join us on therighttrack.avo.app. You can learn more about Avo at avo.app, and please follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter via AvoHQ.